we're just taking four weeks to read together through the, the Song of Solomon, two chapters at a time. We looked at the first two chapters last week, and we're in chapters three and four tonight, as you have just heard. When Jesus was asked about uh, marriage and divorce uh, in, the new, in the Gospels, he refused to be drawn into, this, into the discussion. You know, in the Gospels, you find that Jesus was always uh, being um, shadowed by the religious leaders. They were always trying to catch him out and uh, setting traps for him. And uh, this was one of those occasions when they wanted him to uh, come down one way or the, on the other as to whether um, divorce should be easy or whether it should be forbidden altogether. There were two schools of thought uh, in uh, Judaism in those days. And he refused to be drawn into that discussion. Uh, and he said this to them. He said, haven't you read, which is a bit of a put down because they were the religious leaders. They should have read their Bibles. Haven't you read, he says, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. Okay. You would have thought that's not controversial. <laughs> but it is, isn't it, in our culture today, in our society today, that we, have to, this is, we cannot move from this. From the beginning, he says, he who created them made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. In, in other words, if, if you want to understand human relationships, you've got to go back to the very beginning. What was the very first commandment that God uh, gave to the human race? Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, have lots of sex, because that's what it means. God isn't against sex. It was his idea. It's his gift to the human race. Uh, right there on page one of the Bible, God says, go for it. But as we saw last time, of course, there's a context. There's a, there's a place where sex belongs, and that's on page two of the Bible, Genesis chapter two. That's the one man, one woman, lifelong commitment of marriage, where the two become one flesh, and they're naked and not ashamed. That is the context. So as the song says, love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like a horse and carriage. And uh, we're going to explore that uh, tonight in, in these two chapters and see how love and marriage fit together. Because you will have noticed this is Solomon's wedding day. You see that there in verse 11 of chapter 3. Uh, daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look. You, you daughters of Zion, look on King Solomon, wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding. So in chapter 3, you have Solomon's wedding day. In chapters 1 and 2, you, you know, which we looked at last week, there's no mention uh, of this couple in terms of her being a bride. The word bride doesn't appear in chapters 1 and 2. But in chapter 4, it appears six times. Uh, only 25 times altogether in the Bible do you find the word bride. And six times is in chapter 4. So clearly a marriage has taken place. And it's the wedding of King Solomon. And it's pretty obvious, I think, what's happening here. Uh, in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3, it's the night before the wedding. In uh, verses 6 to 11 of chapter 3, it's the wedding day itself. And then in chapter 4, the bit you've all been waiting for, the wedding night. So that's how we're going to look at it. First of all, then, it's, it's the night before the big day. And, of course, she's finding it difficult to, to sleep, to get to sleep. She's, she's dreaming of him. 
Notice uh, how she describes him. He's the one my heart loves, she says. She says that a number of times in these verses. Uh, this is not casual sex. This is not promiscuous, unbridled desire. It, it, it is focused on the one that her heart loves. And she's dreaming about him. She can't get to sleep. It's a classic case of, of, of pre-wedding nerves, really, isn't it? She's afraid, perhaps, that something might go wrong. She's afraid that she might be jilted at the altar. Uh, this is the day that she's been waiting for all her life. And... Uh, well, she's scared that something is going to happen that will spoil it. She's, perhaps he's changed his mind. Perhaps something uh, terrible is going to happen to snatch him away from her. You know that bit in the marriage service when uh, the minister says, if anyone can show any just cause uh, why, they may, why they may not be lawfully married, let them speak now or forever after keep their peace. That's always an awkward moment, isn't it? Usually there's some nervous laughter, and then everyone breathes a sigh of relief, especially the minister. Because if someone did actually raise an objection, I, as, a, as an ordained minister, I would have to stop the proceedings. Uh, I would be legally obliged to stop the ceremony. It couldn't go ahead. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a, a serious moment in, in, a, in a wedding uh, service. So she, she, here she is then. Uh, she's, she's, it's the night before the wedding. She's in bed, half awake and half asleep. Every time she closes her eyes, she has this, this terrible nightmare. She, she's running around the deserted city streets in her nightclothes. Look at verse 2. I'll get up now and, and go about the city, she says, through its streets and squares. I, I'll search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him but did not find him. This is clearly a dream sequence. It's, it's surreal, isn't it? This is the stuff that dreams are made of. And then look at verse 3. She bumps into a policeman, as you do in a dream. Uh, the watchman found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves, she asks them. Imagine saying that to a cop in the middle of the night. Hello, 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 what have you got here? <laughs> have you seen him? Have you seen him? Who? The one my heart loves. You need more than that to go on if you're reporting a missing person to the police, don't you? The one my heart loves. And then suddenly she rounds a corner and, and there he is, verse 4. Scarcely had I passed them, she says, when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him into my mother's house, to the room of the one waking from her dream. She, she flings her arms around him. And maybe, waking from her dream, maybe, she goes into her mother's room, just as she did when she was a little girl, and she sleeps in her mother's bed until all her fears subside. Or maybe that's part of the dream as well. And the next morning, uh, she, um, she tells her friends all about it. Daughters of Jerusalem, she says, verse 5, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now, let me pause briefly here again, because um, this warning, as I, I said last week, is it's repeated three times in the Song of Solomon. It's the kind of chorus line. Uh, it's, it's, it's mentioned three times, and I, I just want to ask the question, why, why, why does it come in here at this point? We saw last week, but why does it come in at this point? I think it's clearly a warning to us not to play around with people's affections. 
See, what may be a harmless flirtation to you, I'm speaking probably to the men more than to the women, what may be a harmless flirtation to you may in fact be far from harmless. She's having nightmares. She's losing sleep. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 3 can be translated, night after night this is happening. It's a recurring nightmare. Significant sleep loss leads to bizarre behavior. And so she charges her friends, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. Don't play around with people's feelings. And this is, surely this has got something to say to us as parents as well. There are parents here, and some of you perhaps will become parents, um, young married couples. And uh, Well, I think this has got something to say to you as parents. You know, kids today are maturing physically uh, at a younger age than previous generations. Uh, many, many are physically mature before they're emotionally mature. And, and one of the really horrible things that's happening uh, today in our society is the sexualization of young children. Isn't that right? And we need to stand against that. It's evil. And, and really, that's what this is warning us about. Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. And isn't it interesting when she, when she goes, isn't it interesting to see where she goes, where she goes with her fears and anxieties? She goes to the place she associates with stability and security, to her mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me, she says. Isn't it a tragedy today that fewer and fewer kids feel that they can do that? They don't bring their troubles home. They share them on Facebook or Twitter with all the complications that that brings. What a painful thing it is when your kids don't feel that they can talk to you about their fears and their anxieties. Don't let that happen in your home, in your family. There's, there's a great uh, book by uh, Patricia Wirick, and some of you, I think, have heard Patricia speak at Cornerstone. Uh, she's a Christian sexologist, and she's written lots of really helpful books for parents with children at different stages, different age groups, uh, to, 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 to help parents know how to talk with their kids about sex. That's so important. That, that's, that's the practical application, I think, of this warning here. Do not awaken or arouse love until the appropriate time. And I don't want to read too much into this, but you notice how she describes this, this place of security. It's the room of the one who conceived me. The best preparation that you can give your kids for marriage is to love your spouse. The best place for kids to grow up is in a home where mum and dad love one another. Where there is a healthy, physical relationship between father and mother. That is the best, that is the best sex education for children. The home. Not the school. Not the playground but a loving home where mum and dad have a loving, caring, intimate relationship. And they are mum and dad, and they're not parent one and parent two. Where boys are raised to be men, and girls are raised to be women. And that responsibility belongs to parents, not to the state. And we must never allow the state to intrude upon that. So it's the night before her wedding. Uh, where else should she be than in her mother's home, than in, uh, at home with her mum? 
Now let's look at the wedding itself, verses 6 to 11 of chapter 3. This is the uh, official wedding video, really, isn't it? I mean, last time we picked up some snapshots uh, from their photograph album of their blossoming relationship, but now we get to watch the video of the wedding. That's what you've got there in verses 6 to 11. And it's very professionally done. It starts with a long-distance, wide-angle shot to the horizon. And there on the horizon is a cloud of dust, like a pillar of smoke. And not only do you see it, but you can smell it. It, it, And it awakens our curiosity, doesn't it? Look at verses 6 and 7. Who is this coming from the wilderness, like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it's Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. This is the wedding procession. It's, it's Solomon's entourage. He's being carried, probably not on an, 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 an elephant, but that's the only slide I could find. He's being carried on a portable throne, surrounded by a guard of honor. And, and of course, it's a very public occasion, very much of a public occasion. The crowds are are called out onto the streets to witness it. Verse 11, daughters of Jerusalem, come out. Look, you daughters of Zion, look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. It's a right royal occasion, isn't it? Shouldn't every wedding be? Sometimes couples couples say, well, why do we need all the fuss and expense of a wedding ceremony? Fewer and fewer uh, couples are getting married these days in Australia. I mean, do we really need uh, to get married? After all, we love one another. What difference does a a piece of paper make? (laughs) And my answer to that is that it makes all the difference in the world, that piece of paper. Because that piece of paper is the contract. It is the covenant. And if you don't love one another enough to do that, to commit yourselves legally before witnesses to one another for the rest of your lives, then you don't really love one another at all. It's just sentiment. Your wedding ought to be a right royal occasion. Next to the day of your conversion, it's the single most important day of your life. But don't misunderstand me. It doesn't have to be expensive. You don't have to go broke to get married. I'm not suggesting that for one moment. Some of the best weddings I've been to, and I've, I've been to a lot of weddings over, over the years, some of the best weddings I've been to have been the simplest. In fact, uh, I've observed over the years that the amount of money spent on the ceremony is often in inverse proportion to how long the marriage actually lasts. <laughs> so don't go blowing the budget and impoverishing yourselves. You don't have to do that just to have a a royal wedding. It doesn't have to be expensive. It can be as simple, but it uh, it needs to be serious. And I'm not saying either that you have to get married to be fulfilled as a human being. Don't hear me say that. Sometimes we Christians can give that impression. Sometimes preachers, you know, with all our illustrations and our applications, we're applying it to, to family and to kids and We can give the impression, you know, that you have to be married in order to have a full life. Uh, That's wrong. We talk about marriage sometimes as if it were the be-all and end-all of our existence. That's to make marriage into an idol. 
Sometimes, you know, we refer to our partners sometimes as, as the other half. You know, as if a single person is only half human. That is insulting. That is nonsense. That makes Jesus. What does that make Jesus? See, we're, we're, we're not made for marriage. We're made for God. I sometimes used to say that when I, I've given up my marriage license now. So I don't marry people anymore. But I always to say, you know, you think you're made for one another? You're not made for one another. Oh, aren't they a lovely couple? They're just made for one another. No, they're not. They're not made for one another. We are made for God. In heaven there will be neither marrying or giving in marriage, Jesus said. Marriage is a choice for us here and now, but, but you can choose not to be married. That is a perfectly acceptable, godly choice. Jesus didn't get married. He's fully human. He is the perfect human. The Apostle Paul chose not to get married, I think. He may have been Maybe he was married and he was divorced when he became a Christian. I'm not, I'm not sure whether his wife walked out on him. Uh, I don't know for sure, but he, he says that uh, when he writes that letter to the Corinthians, that he's, I wish that everyone was just like me. And he unentangled with, with marriage responsibilities and family responsibilities because he wanted to give himself to the work of the gospel unhindered. And that's a perfectly legitimate choice to make. Many have... Many have made that choice for all sorts of good reasons. You can choose to live a celibate life. But marriage is the God-given context for sex. That's what this song is, is teaching us. And married sex is the best sex. So let me show you that, because this is the bit that uh, you've been waiting for. <laughs> it's the wedding night. Not the night before the wedding. Not the wedding day itself, but the wedding night. Jacob had the, the great privilege of reading that chapter for us. Chapter 4. And as I said, you notice in that chapter that six times in ten verses, he refers to her as his bride. Uh, the word bride only occurs 25 times altogether in the entire Bible. And six times here in this chapter, he calls her, you know, it's my sister, my bride. That doesn't mean he's marrying his sister, but your lover should also be your best friend. You should enjoy one another's company. So it's the first night for this girl. Many songs have been written about that first night, haven't they? Here's one by Rod Stewart. I can't quote the whole song because it's not, not edifying. But it starts like this. Kick off your shoes and sit right down. Loosen off that pretty French gown. Let me pour you a good stiff drink. Oh, baby, don't you hesitate. Tonight's the night. It's going to be all right. I love you, girl, and nobody's going to stop us now. Come on, angel. My heart's on fire. Don't deny your man's desire. I won't go on because it's not PG. Tonight's the night. Only it's not her wedding night. That song is about sex but it's not in the context of marriage. It describes a girl's first sexual experience, but it's not on her wedding night. C compare that with what you have here. Solomon's bride is ready. He doesn't have to persuade her against her will. He, he doesn't have to ply her with alcohol. 
He doesn't need to give her a good stiff drink to get her into bed with him. He whispers to her. He woos her. He praises her beauty. The imagery here, it, it, it's, it's certainly erotic, but it's not crude. As you read these verses, the, as you read these verses, there's a video playing in Solomon's head, but it's not a porn movie. He's painting her portrait from her head down to her toes. Look, look at verse 1. Look at how it starts there in verse 1. How beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. I read somewhere uh, in contrast to that about a, a pastor whose marriage split up and his wife wrote a book about it and she said on her wedding night, first thing he said to her was, you look fat. That's not Solomon. Didn't realize you were so fat, he said. Pastor. No wonder the marriage didn't last. Here's Solomon, how beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. Behind your veil, your, your eyes, are, you can see her eyes shining from behind the veil. Your eyes are like doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down Mount Gilead. It's like a sun guard, isn't it? <laughs> Shampoo. He, he sees her long flowing black hair, and, and it reminds him of hundreds of black goats bouncing down the slopes of Mount Gilead, one of the most beautiful uh, mountains in Israel. And then he describes his smile. <laughs> Red lips and white teeth. Look at verse 2. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep, just shorn, coming up from the washing. So she's cleaned her teeth. <laughs> Each has its twin. <laughs> Not one of them is missing. <laughs> they didn't have dentists in those days. Your, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. She's got all her own teeth. There are no gaps. There are no fillings. And then he says, verse 3, you've got a head like a pomegranate. He's a real charmer, this guy, isn't he? Your temples behind your veil, he says, are like the halves of a pomegranate, flushed red like the flesh of a pomegranate cut in two. And verse 4, there's something about the way she holds her head that reminds him of the Tower of David, decked with shields, majestic and dignified. And her breasts, well, you can read that for yourselves. There's something beautiful about this, about the way that Solomon greets his bride on their wedding night with such respect and such admiration. He takes the time to, to pay her these compliments. There's, there's no one else for him. He's not comparing her with anyone else. Man, this is called lovemaking. I, I don't want to be crude, but it's not wham, bang, and thank you, ma'am, is it? There's great tenderness and sensitivity and understanding here, don't you think? It's called making love. And poet or no poet, you have to find a way to do this. You may not have a way with words like Solomon, that may not be your thing, but every couple has their own love language and you need to be fluent in it. Making love is more than having sex. It's not just what you do with your bodies. Adam knew his wife, Eve, it says in Genesis. And that's not just a euphemism for sexual intercourse. It's a description of it. 
Peter says in, in the New Testament, Husbands, live with your wives with understanding. As with a weaker vessel, it says. That, that's not a good translation, and that leads to all sorts of uh, angst from feminists. And uh, what he took, what, it's, The weaker vessel, it's like a precious... Like, we've got a Ming vase in our house. It isn't worth anything. It just looks like a Ming vase, and it's on our mantelpiece. But if it was a Ming vase, it would be very, very valuable, wouldn't it? Now, I don't take that Ming vase down from the, from the mantelpiece and throw it around to my sons like a rugby ball. That we, you, you wouldn't treat a precious, valuable thing like that, like a rugby ball, would you? And Peter is saying, live with your wives with understanding as with the weaker vessel. Uh, no understanding that she's woman. She's not another, one of the blokes. And you don't live with her as if she's just one of the blokes down at the club or whatever. You, you, you take the trouble, as Solomon is doing here, to understand her, the way she thinks, her feelings. That's what it means when it says that Adam knew his wife. And here we're given just a beautiful demonstration of that, aren't we? God allows us just to listen in, as it were, to, uh, to their bedroom talk. So look at verses 8 to 11. Solomon is inviting her to make love to him. And he uses the geography of her homeland. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Ammoner, from the top of Sina, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You've stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. See, that, that northern mountain range in Lebanon, where she's from, with its cold, distant peaks, he invites her to, to leave that behind her. Leave the images of your homeland behind you tonight. It, it's hard work making love if your mind is elsewhere. Many a romantic moment is spoiled by visions of dirty dishes and mountains of ironing, or, or committees, or business opportunities. Come away, he says. This isn't something you rush. This is something you, you, you make time for. Come away. And those northern mountains of Lebanon are a dangerous place too, the haunt of lions and leopards. And he's saying to her on her wedding night, come away, not only from the thoughts of home and what you've left behind, but come away from all your fears and anxieties. And then in verse 12, the marriage is consummated. And you notice she has kept herself for him, hasn't she? Do you see the language there? Verse 12, he says to her, you are a garden locked up. She's kept her virginity. She's kept herself for this night. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You're a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. And she says, verse 16, and this is, we talk a lot about consent. She is now consenting. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choicest fruits. And he, and he replies there in verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. And do you see where he is? Do you see where they are? They're in the promised land now, aren't they? The land flowing with milk and honey. And guess what? Their friends are outside cheering them on <laughs> approvingly, as they often do in Eastern weddings, by the way. This most private of acts gets publicly praised, and rightly so. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. 
Listen to them cheering her on. Eat, friends, drink, drink your fill of love. Some commentators say that's actually God cheering them on. Now let me just say a few things to close. If you're not yet married, listen again to this, the chorus of this song. Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. Be prepared to wait. Pray God to lead you to the right partner. Trust his timing. Don't rush into anything. Don't panic. Use the Bible. There are principles in Scripture that will help you discover who the right person is for you. I mean, I don't mean open the Bible and there you find a name like, oh, I've got to marry Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Not too many Nebuchadnezzars around in Hobart. <laughs> no, I don't mean don't use the Bible like that. But there are principles in Scripture that will help you understand the kind of person that you need in your life. And then, when it happens, let love develop gradually. Save sex for marriage. Keep yourself for your marriage partner. Don't let this sex-crazed world spoil it all for you. Don't let this sex-crazed world squeeze you into its mold. Dare to be different. John White's written lots of helpful Christian books, and he's got a book called Eros Defiled, where he talks about sexual desire as a spring wound up. It's as though a spring is wound up, locked in place, ready to be released when the occasion arrives. And should that moment not come, he says, I need experience no discomfort. Now, I know very many people, uh, for very, very many people, and maybe for some of you even here tonight, this will sound quaint and ridiculously old-fashioned. Do you know why that is? Someone's moved the goalposts. Tony, Tony, Tony Campolo, in one of his books, tells the story of some pranksters who slipped into a department store at closing time and switched the price tags, creating havoc the next day when the sales were on. Items that usually carried higher prices, such as you know, televisions and entertainment centers, had ridiculously low price tags, while products of no value at all, really, were marked with higher prices. And that's what's happened in our world, hasn't it? Someone's got into the, into the department store and swapped the price tags. Isn't that right? We know who. An enemy has done this. So that what should be prized as valuable is now dirt cheap in our society, in our culture. And then maybe some of you have found what I've had to say today difficult and painful because, well, for you, it's too late. You've already crossed the line. Uh, to use the imagery of this song, you know, gardens have been entered when they shouldn't have been. Fountains have been drunk from when they shouldn't have been. And there's sadness and pain and regret. And, and, and though God doesn't condone that, neither does he condemn you for it. I want you to understand that tonight. Remember the, the encounter that Jesus had with the woman taken in adultery? Neither do I condemn you, he says. Go and sin no more. He doesn't condemn her or the man who's probably more guilty than she was. He doesn't condemn her, but neither does he condone sexual immorality either. He says, go and sin no more. And I want you to know, my friends, 
that uh, in Christ there's always the possibility of a fresh start and a new beginning. Sexual sin is, is not the unforgivable sin. Though sometimes it, it's, it leaves its scars in our lives. And sometimes we have to live with the consequences. Sometimes the whole of the rest of our lives are, are messed up because of the mistakes that we made, perhaps in that area. But you know, the good news is this, you know, that one day even the scars will be gone, won't they? When Jesus presents his bride to the Father without spot or without blemish. You, you can be forgiven for, for, for sexual sins. You can be forgiven. There is uh, all manner of sin and blasphemy can be forgiven except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So there's forgiveness. And, and you can be forgiven. And you don't have to carry the, the burden of guilt and shame around with you. You, you can be forgiven and you have that burden lifted from your shoulders. You may still have the scars and you may have to live with that for years to come. But ultimately, even that will be gone when we see him as he is and we'll be like him. And just one last word. Remember, your identity is in Christ, not in your marital status. Whether you're married or single, what matters more than anything is that you should be united to Christ by faith. Maybe you're not married, and it doesn't look like you ever will be, <laughs> you think, but God's sovereign. Don't feel that you've missed out. Or perhaps you're trapped inside a marriage that isn't at all like this one. Well, I, I want you to know that what you have in Christ is infinitely more precious than this. Sex is for this world. In heaven, there's no sex. Why? Because it's not needed. It's not even desired. Difficult as that might be for us to imagine. To know God in Christ is to need nothing. Jesus, Jesus, all sufficient, beyond telling, is your worth.